Hello and welcome to Northeast Christian Church online service. We are so happy to have you with us. Please be sure to follow NECC on all social media platforms. And to listen to all our past messages, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the service. are coming to the close of our series on Ecclesiastes. Thank goodness, because I can't take this pessimist any more than we already have, but there are some great lessons here. And so this week and then the last Sunday in this month, after Pastor Dylan shares next week, I'm going to close off our series, and it's Missions Month, and it is to die for. It is just going to be an amazing, amazing month. And so keep your eye out in the mail for updates. Keep your heart open wide as we bring in some of the greatest Christians and speakers this world has that we were able to get a hold of. I'm telling you, we're just all in. But before I go any further, I have some unfinished business. Is Raina here? Did anyone see Raina? Raina, come here real quick, if you would. I'm not, don't want to, it's a risk, because I could do anything right now, right? She tirelessly got up early in the morning on Father's Day, Father's Day, and tried to get that pig ready, and our calculations were wrong. We set her off, but she was starting like crazy early hours, and we wanted to just say thank you with this gift of $100 to say, go get some bling, baby. Go get some bling. And now here's the thing. Sometimes you catch somebody doing something good, and you know, you catch him in the act of doing something good. Joe, stop talking in church. Come up here real quick. This guy, this guy, I pull out of the lot. And my, yes, a couple weeks ago, my son said to me, Dad, the front of my car is scratched because there's this ditch that's like right on the ground. And I'm leaving church. And Joe, you're out there filling it in. Nobody asked you to do that. Nobody told you to do that. Nobody asked you to do that. I caught you doing something good, and I just want to bless you for it. This one's for 50 bucks, though. So, but I, just, I had another one, but I want to say, I want to say thank you. Thank you. I tell you what, he, he's good. he said to me, Pastor Paul, I want to fix a, a couple of potholes, especially the entrance side. I wish we had the, the, the money to redo the whole parking lot, but, but if you are like, hey, I would totally help him with that. Uh, we got a couple of potholes we're going to fill in, and you can just talk to him. But I love you, man. Appreciate you. Yeah, you're appreciated. Now, there are some people here that would get mad if I did that to them that do stuff anonymous, anonymously in the church. Rita. But um, we, won't do, we won't pull you out, and, you know, they're planting stuff. And every once in a while, I come, come by, and I saw a few years back, I, I saw people's handiwork, planning things, and, and uh, my wife comes by here all the time, and, and I just want to say thank you for making this your church. Like, it, 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 I've watched people, when they walk by garbage on the ground, they just pick it up. It's not their garbage, but you know what? They say, it's, it's my church, and they pick it up, and they throw it out, and I, I just, I'm really proud of you guys as a people. This is a great community, and uh, I appreciate you. So, with that in mind, let's pray, and we're going to dive right into chapter one of Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1 of Ecclesiastes. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would take the meaninglessness of this man's life and speak meaning into ours, that everything is meaningful and significant. And so we give you glory and honor. 
We come here to listen, to hear, to obey, to be what you have declared us to be through your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just let this book be the measure for our life and let this be the goal that we set our direction for. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me read it first, and then we can, <coughs> we can slice it up in pieces as we go. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. I'm reading out of the NIV, the older NIV. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart or to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. You are on earth, so let your words be few. Now he says this little parable here, this little uh, proverb, this parable, this, this illustration. He says, a dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. So he's using this to reflect off of like, be careful when you go to church, don't open your mouth too much. And then he goes on and talks about people's dreams and desires of what they want to do. And he he addresses it now in the second half. And he says, when you make a vow, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vows. It is better to not make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry with me? What you say, and why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Notice he threw that parable back at us again. He just changed the wording a little bit and talks about like dreams and words and they're always falling out. And his bottom line is, therefore, fear God. Let me just bring a couple of us back into dial with the big picture of this this book. This book is written with two authors, two writers. There is the teacher, as we said, the Kohelet in Hebrew, and if you translate it into Greek and Latin, it's ecclesia, where we get the word ecclesiastes, or church from, ecclesia, or ecclesiology, the the theology of church. And uh, this teacher, He says a lot of stuff, but he's framed in the opening and closing chapters, and I think sometimes in between there, by this other person that's taken his teachings, packaged them and handed them to us, but given them in such a way to say, just because he's wise, just because he's a teacher, doesn't mean you should do everything. Extra cream, regular sugar, hot coffee, Dunkin' Donuts. (laughs) But he who gives a cup of cold water... His reward shall not be withheld from him. Thank you so much for the hat, too. You see, there's a problem with this guy who writes Ecclesiastes, because although he's wise and he's a teacher, and we uh, have a couple of theories, one of them is that it's Solomon, or teaching Solomon, The problem is, is the guy is looking at life from a secular humanistic point of view. Well, Pastor Paul, it's in the Bible. How can you say that? Well, the guy embraces pleasure and he avoids pain at all costs. How many of you know a weasel of a friend that as soon as they find better plans, all of a sudden they can't get together with you anymore? You You ever have that happen? The whole place is quiet. You guys are those people, aren't you? 
right? It's like, I'll do that until the better plan comes along. And and this guy's like, avoid pain, embrace pleasure, do what's convenient. And and I can say that he's coming from a secular humanistic point of view because Ecclesiastes 2.10, he he says it all throughout it. He's like, I denied myself nothing. He denied himself nothing. He he never said no. He he couldn't say, he didn't say no to uh, enough wine to enough women or to enough men where different strokes for different folks wherever you're at all of this he just consumed and his whole journey was to taste test the world at its maximum velocity and see what it was really worth and so this teacher he's not necessarily a good teacher now my grandmother was a teacher i was on an archive in westchester county and all of a sudden i'm looking at the school picture and i'm like that's my grandma now, here's the thing about my grandmother. She was an elementary school teacher, but every time I went over to her house to play, I had to put a puzzle together to put the states and the capitals. And then she made me write essays. Like, I'm like, Grandma, I got army men. I want to go outside and take a match and melt them and watch them drip and, and you know, throw rocks at them. And like seven, she's like, you're going to write an essay for me first. So my grandmother was like this teacher. In fact, I'm looking at her script up there. You, you can't see it, but uh, I, have, I, I think I have good script. I was like, oh, my goodness, I, I, I learned from the master, my teacher, my grandmother. And my grandmother was a great example. But you know what? This teacher is not the best of examples because he just overdoes it. And it's almost as if he takes the compass and it's not that he's lost it, he's left it behind. It's not that he has uh, uh, lost his anchor to the sea, he cut the rope so that he could go adrift and see where the current would take him. Uh, There's two, uh, futuring theologists out there. One of them, his name is Brian McLaren. The other one is Leonard Sweet. Leonard Sweet's a friend of mine, and he's always futuring. Everybody in church work who just wants to feel better about themselves talks about how bad he is, you know, theologically and all this. But he is such a grounded guy. He just likes thinking. It's like the more he thinks outside of the box, the more he realizes God wasn't in it. But he, but this guy Brian McLaren, he's written this, he's written a series of books that are just out to lunch. It's almost like he just takes the, the things of the gospel that are important and critical and grounding, like scripture is the word of God. Jesus is the only way to get to the Father. And it's like he takes the compass and he throws it away. He takes the, he takes the anchor and he lets it go. And he, he leaves people to drift in the ocean. And I'll tell you what, there's no worse death and no easier way to lose your life than to just take a boat into the currents of the ocean and disappear. Your chances of being found are like nothing. And that's really what this teacher is like. He just went out there and he just cut the cord to the anchor. He tossed the compass and he said, let's just see where it all takes us. And then he goes and he says, everything's meaningless, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. You know, any of you who've had your fill of alcohol, you realize there comes a point where you realize that it's destroying your life versus developing it. Any of you who have sexual addictions realize that it is not a pleasure, it's actually a problem in your life. Excess is not good. This teacher all of a sudden just starts saying everything's meaningless, and we talked about how that word meaningless, which is pronounced hevel, hevel, is actually not 
meaningless, not useless. It's actually the word for a vapor. We had a vaporizer up here a couple of weeks ago, and, and that's literally what it is. And so in English, we're trying to say, how do we communicate that? The teacher is really saying life is so brief, it's so quick, it's so short, it's so, it's almost as if you could say it never was really there. In other words, how meaningless, how worthless. I can't leave a mark on this life because as soon as I was here, I, I'm gone. And in comparison to eternity, he's right. So it's better to talk about vapor. And in fact, we talked about Abel's name. That's what Abel's name is. It's actually properly pronounced Hevel. Just like we sometimes mispronounce other names, like Ab Abraham is actually Avraham. And who cares, right? It doesn't matter. Like, uh, th those kind of things aren't there. But it's, it's interesting for, in the case of Abel because it's the irony of his life that here's this guy that's doing things right, that's living for God, and no soon does he just start pleasing God. His brother kills him. He's taken away in tragedy, and you can look at it and say, vapor, vapor. That's the story of his life. He wasn't even here long enough to make any kind of lasting difference. And don't make the mistake that this cynical teacher makes when you read the book and when you try to apply it to your life because all of life and every moment is meaningful. Jesus Christ brings the meaning to it. And as short and as brief as my life is, I want my life to matter for eternity. I want to make a difference. It might be a brief vapor, but I want it to be the most significant vapor that ever was there. All life and every moment is meaningful, every second precious. And before we take and this teacher's teaching and become a cynic like him and saying meaningless, meaningless, you need to remember that in Hebrews chapter 11, it reads like this. It says, in chapter 11, verse 5, by faith, Abel brought a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he's dead. I don't want my name to be remembered and continued because of fame. I want my name to be continued and remembered because of what I did for eternity. That my little life made a big difference in God's purpose and plan for all the other vapors that were showing up in the scene when I was there. One day this church should Jesus Terry from coming back will be in ruins. It might be a new building. It might be a new location. People will come that will not necessarily know who I am or who you are, but God remembers. Your life is meaningful. It's not a mist. It is an irrelevance of time, but it's not that it's without purpose. And don't Take what this teacher says and get caught in the trap because every second's precious. He ends the book like this and he says in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, he says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of, of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. And there's another verse in the New Testament that says that every idle word that, we have been, that we've ever spoken, that sobers me. 
I, I, may, I, I, I believe with all of my heart that, that there is, it, when the Bible says that I'm forgiven and set free, I'm forgiven and set free, but I also believe when the Bible says that I'm gonna have to give an account for everything, there's going to be a discussion between me and my heavenly father about my life. You see, it's not like he's gonna say, oh, peekaboo, I don't see your sins, I just see you. In a sense, yes, in grace and in justice, God satisfied his grace, but God says, you will give an account of every idle word. Everything you said when somebody wasn't listening, God was listening. Every single thought that passed through your mind. Now, there's a difference between resting your life in sin versus stuff passing your head. All kinds of stuff goes through my head every once in a while. I talk to some of you, and I'm like, they're whack, they're crazy. And then I'm like, Jesus, you love them, I love them too. I'm just kidding. But like, St. Francis had this saying, he said, there's a difference between a bird dropping on your head versus allowing him to build a nest in it. We all have stuff that goes through our mind, but I'm talking about that stuff that is reflective of your heart that's deep-seated in there. I'm going to have to give an account to God. I'm going to have to give an account to him. That sobers me. You know, the, the teacher said everything's meaningless. There was a man by the name of William Carey. In the, I, I, this, is, this is a little bit complex, but I'll make it very, very simple and very, very quick because um, I'm, I just don't want to turn this into a classroom. But... In the history of the church, in the history of missions, it's gone through a lot of different changes. Powers corrupted it, wealth's corrupted it, people have purified it, we've gone in right directions, wrong directions, but during the Reformation in the 1600s, a good thing happened in that the church became so entrenched in corruption and financial corruption that um, they were basically saying you could pay families way out out of hell and into heaven. And this is where Martin Luther, John Calvin, um, Count Zwingli, these different people, God began to move in their heart because they were going from town to town and they were collecting money and they said, uh, every coin that, I know someone could finish this for me, but just let me do the rough version. Every time a coin dings, a hell from soul springs. You know, it's like they, they had this kind of quote, like throw money in. In fact, it, it built um, St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome, the money that was collected from that. And finally, Martin Luther reads the book of Romans, and he's like, hey, this is, this is garbage. This is garbage. God's grace is, is free. It comes from God, not from the church. You don't pay for it. He gives it to us. And to understand uh, Calvinism in the 21st century, you really have to understand John Calvin today. If he were to show up he would be in disagreement with most of the people that would say that they're Calvinist because he was actually speaking to the corruption of the Catholic Church and trying to help people know that God's salvation for your life is not insecure in the church's hand when you please them or displease them. It's in the hands of God, and it's sure, and it's solid, and it's true. And um, the church continued forward through the ages, but here's the problem is, is that even that movement got sour. And they started saying, God predestines who he's going to save and who's going to be lost. So why should we go around the world and share with people the message of Jesus? Because Jesus can save who he wants to save. And those who don't hear, they're going to just 
lose, and, and that's okay, because God predestined them. He's in Book of Acts, chapter 20, he's chosen the time and the places where all men can live, and, and all of this, and they, they became complacent, and their complacency took place not in the corruption of money, it took place in the, the, the sharing of the gospel, and the, the confronting and the carefronting of truth around the world, and in the midst of this, a young man by the name of William Carey comes in before a, a group of people in the 1700s and he says, we have an obligation. We have an obligation to share the gospel around the world. We have, to, we have to bring the message and the meaning of Jesus Christ around the world. And one guy turned around to him and said, young man, sit down and shut up. If God wants to save the pagan, he'll do it without your help. And he felt embarrassed in that moment. And he walked away and he wrote in his journal this statement. He said, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at what doesn't matter. And William Carey then, against the, the, the cautions of all of these people in higher church standing, turned and said, I'm gonna bring meaning to this world with this vapor of a life of mine. And he began the missions movement that continued with Adoniram Judson, who, his wife, Anne Hasseltine, launched from Bradford College and from there continued on and on and on. And in fact, I'm proud to say that within the Assemblies of God, we have some of the strongest, the strongest thing that we have going for us is that we are bringing the gospel all over this world. Some of them are represented on the back of that wall that are an extension of the staff of this church. But when you say it's meaningless, and you pop your life into cruise control, my warning to you would be is, is that you need to keep in mind this with sobriety that even the author of this book says that God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at what doesn't matter, but I'm even more scared about doing nothing when I could have done something. I don't wanna go through life with the advice of this teacher on my shoulder saying, it's meaningless, it's meaningless. And so what does he do? He says this, he says, guard your steps. When you go, or he goes, here it is. <laughs> he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Well, what in the world does it mean to guard your steps? In English, it might be like, you ever have somebody do this? Hey, watch it. Watch it. Or somebody turns to you and says, you better watch your step, man. That's kind of what he's saying. He's saying, when you're going to the house of God, watch your step. And then he goes on, he says after that, he says, go near to listen rather than to offer sacrifices of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart, uttering anything before God. God is in heaven, you're on earth. Let your words be few. As dream comes, there are many cares, and he goes into his proverb. Let's look at this really quick from a 30,000-foot view. This guy finally offers some good advice. This pessimist and his gospel finally gives us something to work with. Now, he's not going to come straight out and say, meaningful, meaningful, or useful, useful, or worthy, worthy, but he, finally he gives us something other than cynicism to work with. The previous chapters, everything he was focusing on is under the sun. You've got to take his advice, and if you just look at it from your temporal life, you really have to agree with him. Yeah, 
I can't make much of a difference under the sun. But the, he's not talking about what's under the sun. Now he's talking and he's saying, now let's take a 30,000 foot view from God's perspective in eternity and take a look at this above the sun. He says, let's see what God has to say to all of this. And he says, he, he talks a bit about oaths and offerings. He's warning us while God is worthy that you and I can make worship meaningless if we're not careful. That we can make our church going useless and meaningless if we're not careful to, uh, to heed what God would want us to do in our approach and our relationship with him. All talk and no follow through is no good for you. Turn to your neighbor, put your fingers together like this. I grew up around Italians. It's okay. Italians need the Irish. We're the muscle that does all the work for the mob. Turn to him and say, all talk and no do no good for you. Go ahead, tell your spouse. All talk and no do is no good for you. It's no good. All talk and no walk leads, me, leads to meaningless and even dangerous places. Now here's a little grammar lesson in everything that this guy's been doing. Everything he says, he's been saying it like a wonderful philosopher and teacher, and he's been very subjective and very, very suggestive in his language as well. And he's like, I considered and I went out and I did this and I tried that. And now all of a sudden in chapter five, it's like he pops it into fifth gear. He pulls out his finger and he uses what's called the imperative language. And he's screaming at you. When you go to church, watch your step. Don't be like an idiot flapping your mouth and stop making vows and not following through on them. Hey. It's, it's the strangest thing. It's almost like there's part of me that's kind of like, I wonder if this is that guy that we see at the beginning and the end of the chapter throwing himself in the middle of it so that we don't get lost. But I, I, I look at every part of this as the inspired and inherent infallible word of God. I, I'm, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. It's there. But, but, but it's just this flip. All of a sudden, when he begins to talk at things from an eternal perspective, he flips out on us and he's like, what's wrong with you? And the guy hasn't done this anywhere else. He says, guard your steps. How many of us take time to prepare for worship? Do you know that most, this is, this is I, I, I haven't done a statistical analysis on this, but I know I could hit a home run with it, that most of your fights happen in your homes either Saturday night or on the ride to church especially those of you with children. It was so bad with my wife and I that at one time we're like, how do we break the cycle? And she said, you drive and I, I drive separate. We drive separate. And so we start going to church separate for, for a little bit. And now I have to show up at different times than she does and it works out there. But how many times, like the night before, that's it, that you get in an argument, it sets a sour tone in you. And then by the time it's time to go to church on Sunday, you're just kind of like, eh, we're not gonna, eh, we're not. We go to chapel all week at Bible college, so we don't need to be here. You know, just picking on some of my friends that are out there. We should guard our steps to church. And we should guard them through the week. Paul commands Christians, 
He says to, to us, he says, when we were doing communion, Pastor Dick, that was the, the most significant communion service I've, I've experienced in a while. Like, we gotta get you up here preaching soon, I mean it. Like, it, it was, it, 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 he was just like, you know what, we need to examine ourselves. This is the blood of Jesus, this is the body of Jesus. Paul, like, almost says, don't just walk to that table after you've spent your week doing this, that, and the other thing. Sober up your life. If you, it's not like you have to take a bath in order to take a shower, but it's time that you clean up your heart look inside and look at, examine yourself and say, that needs to change in my life. This needs to change in my life. That needs to stop in my life. This needs to start in my life. That's what examining yourself means. It doesn't mean like, oh, I'm not worthy. Ch taking of it in an unworthy manner means I'm not going to change this in my life. I'm not going to stop doing this in my life. I'm not gonna start doing in this in my life. Give me the bread, give me the blood. Thank you, Jesus, for this food, amen, on your way. That's an that's an unworthy manner of partaking of it. And when he says to us, guard your steps, he's like, sober up. Paul does it with this. All talk and no follow through brings us to meaningless places. What do I do to guard my steps? There's a lot that can, that can trip you up. He just focuses on two things here, our words and our vows, the words we speak and the promises we keep. So let's take a look here closer at the words we speak. He says in chapter one, verses one and two, chapter five, verses one and two. Sorry, I got this really cool PowerPoint thing, which is so old school. I just love Pro Presenter. Have you ever seen that? It gives everybody vertigo in the audience. Um, none of you know what Pro Presenter is, do you? All right. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifices of fools who do not know that they are doing wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you're on earth. So let your words be few. This is part of like that guarding your life. When you approach God, be circumspect. Listen. That's better than sacrificing like a fool. How many times do we really reflect on the word and the truth that God is putting his finger on in our heart and saying, this needs to change. This needs to stop. This needs to start. You need to deal with that person differently. Don't let what comes out of your mouth cause your whole being to fall into sin. What you say has consequences. Out loud and in private. So let your words be few. The president of the Roaring Twenties was Calvin Coolidge, and he was at a dinner party. He was known as uh, being a man of few words. He didn't, he didn't talk unless it meant something. And so there was a famous actress that was going to be seated right next to him, and her friend made a bet, and she said, I bet you I can get him to say three words tonight when I sit next to him. And so she sat down next to him, and she said, Mr. President, I made a bet with my friend that I would get you to say three words tonight. And he looked at her and he said, you lose. And he didn't talk the rest of the night. I mean, it, it also doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk. It also doesn't mean that those of us that are extroverted 
and like to joke around and talk are sinful, and those of us that are introverted and quiet are holy. It's bigger than that. But I think about Matthew 7, uh, Matthew 6, 7 and 9, where it says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because they're many words. Do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Then this is how you ought to pray. And he says, um, pray this, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. The, the Jewish people are, are brilliant. When they said to Jesus, teach us to pray as John's disciples taught us to pray. In Judaism, we, we don't get this because we're not Jewish, but what happens is, is you have what's called the, Abada, the, uh, the Amidah. The Amidah is, means the standing, the standing prayer. And if you are Jewish and you are a farmer, you have to get out into the fields before the sun rises. Sometimes you just don't have time to have this quiet time with Jesus. You know, it's almost like uh, sometimes we go through these stages where it's like we have, if we don't have our quiet time, some of us don't even know what that place is, and that, that, that's, that's a different challenge that we need to grow into, but sometimes we get caught and we're like, I don't have time for this, and so Jesus gives them what's called the Amidah, the standing prayer. There's not a lot of time to talk to God, so let me give you something simple. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. Forgive those who trust us, give us lead on temptations, those who deliver us from the kingdom, glory forever and ever, amen. That's how I had to do it in Catholic, when I was in the Catholic church, and I can do the Hail Mary twice as fast as anyone in this room. But it don't mean nothing. But to these people, it was like, Lord, you're in heaven. You're holy. Help me make your name holy. Let your kingdom come. I got a lot of work to do. And, and so he gives us this, this quick prayer. Sometimes it doesn't have to be fancy words. Sometimes some of us are like, I'm just not good at praying in front of people. And that's because we're looking at the wrong thing. We're looking for the right words. We're looking for the right delivery. Do you know some of the most beautiful prayers I've ever heard? have come from people that were like unexpected, that were just so simple and basic. See, the opposite can be true. Silence isn't godliness. I grew up in the Catholic Church. Some of you, uh, I know there was a couple of you, one person in particular uh, grew up in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and it's all about saying the right words and being quiet and doing all these kind of things, and quiet is a good thing. In fact, the pastors on this church take a few days each year, and we go away where we don't talk for a few days. We listen to God. I think some of us, we talk so much to God, we never hear what he's trying to say, but, but this is a Pentecostal charismatic, wow, church, right? It's kind of interesting to me, because I've seen all ends of the spectrum in, in, in Christianity, and we've got this interesting mix, right? We've got some of you, that worship team, you guys were going at it. I'm like Pilates for Jesus. They're just jamming. And then some of you are out in the audience and you're like this. It's good. I just don't have to move. It's okay, right? This is my safe space. <laughs> and some of you are looking like, you know what's amazing? You can tell God's really working when I get still because like, I, I really am blessed watching people uninhibited in the presence of God. You know, I'm not just talking, I'm not talking about somebody getting weird and crazy, but, like, I'll never forget, I had a friend uh, of ours 
who couldn't walk, and God pulled her out of a wheelchair. And then the next week in church, she starts crying and laughing, and, and like it went on for like five minutes, and I'm like, oh my gosh. She's like overwhelmed with the, the gratitude that God pulled her out of a wheelchair. Like it was a beautiful thing. It wasn't like we're, we're all going to laugh in the Holy Spirit or anything like that, where it was kind of strange. But you know what? The Bible says, let the weepers weep and the rejoicers rejoice, right? We're all different in that sense. I guess what I'm trying to get at here is there is a reverence, and this guy is warning us not to be flippant with our words, but if you're an extroverted talker, it doesn't mean that you're sinful, and if you're a quiet person, it doesn't mean that you're sinful. If you're a mover and a shaker, it doesn't mean that you're more spiritual, and it doesn't mean that you're less spiritual any more than those of you that are kind of, when God moves, you get still. It's okay, we're all made differently. But when he's talking about God is in heaven and you're on earth, there's a profound distinction between people and God. If we truly understand the gulf between a holy God enthroned and a defiled, self-centered sinner, we'd be rendered speechless. It's funny the way I hear some people talk where they're kind of like pretending to be church people, but they're not. And they're like, God and me are good. We've got an understanding. I'm like, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Or that baseball player. Home run. You know, you can do it all kinds of ways. No, God and you are not good. Sometimes we don't have the right understanding. Those who draw near simply to listen in reverence don't give themselves any occasion for getting into trouble. James says this in chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brethren, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I love Psalm 19, verse 13. I used to hear it growing up at Bible college all the time. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Oh God, my strength and my redeemer. See, this is the hard part of this message is because I sin with my mouth constantly. Any other fellow AA mouth sinners out there with me? Thank you. We love you. <laughs> I constantly do. What's interesting about this is, is he says, go near to listen, to hear. And in Hebrew, there's a double punch that comes out to the word hear or listen. It's called Shema. In fact, there is a prayer that the Jews pray three times a day. The Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohehu Adonai Echad Uvehol Levav Uvehol Nafeshka Uvehol Moecha Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, he is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. The Shema is is hear this about what your relationship with God should be. And what's interesting is it's written in a way that says, with your all. How much of my mind should I give God? Well, it depends. Did you, did, did, are you a genius or are you average? Whatever you have, God wants all of it. With your all, with, with all of your and, and here's the thing about this hearing, this Shema, is the word doesn't simply mean to hear, it also means to fully 
comply and obey. See, you would rush through the prophets and you would hear people that would write things like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, all of them are in your notes and I'd encourage you to just read the word, but they'll constantly say, hear the word of the Lord. They're not just simply telling you to listen to what they're saying. They're saying to you, Shema, obey the word of the Lord. That makes a very profound difference when we hear it. In fact, this Hebraism carries into the New Testament where Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear. It's actually Hebraism that carries into the Greek of the New Testament, and it's Jesus saying basically to you, you hear me, you know exactly what I'm saying. Stop listening to it and start doing it. He wasn't giving an out to people, he was giving an ultimatum to people. And when this writer here finally sobers up and gives us something worth listening to, it helps me understand the force of, Paul, of King Saul's disobedience to God's command. The prophet Samuel goes up to him and he says, you're gonna go against the Amalekites? When you do, kill the king, slaughter all of the animals and offer them up to God. And King, and king Saul goes and he does, and then Samuel the prophet shows up and all of a sudden he hears, he hears sheep bleeding. And then he sees a cave being guarded and inside the cave is the king. And, he, and there's Saul and Saul's like, here I am. Oh, great Samuel, thank you prophet for coming here and validating me in front of all these people. Don't live your life because of the power of a position or the validation of man. And he goes, oh, you're here. And he says, yeah, well, I hear something. I hear the bleeding of sheep. What's going on here? He says, oh, I've obeyed fully everything God says. He says, no, you haven't. You've got the sheep there that you didn't offer to God. You've acquiesced them into yours. And you've got the king still living in there. In fact, Saul, uh, kings, uh, the prophet Samuel, took a sword and cut the king's head off himself and followed through with what the king was supposed to do. But then he turns and he says this. He says, to obey is better than sacrifice. And guess what that word obey is? Shema. To listen, to hear. What does all of this mean? It means that your word is your bond. It's the only thing you have to give, so don't cheapen it. It means that we should be the kind of people when we come to church that we should be, and when we come before God's presence in our personal life, in our personal place, that we should watch our step. We should have a sobriety knowing that we will give an account before God, that we need to stand before him one day, and though we will be graced with forgiveness, know that we will have to give an account of our life, and the quicker that we acknowledge it, the shorter he'll have to get into it with us, I think. And he says, he, it, it's literally this idea that I need to be sober. No amount of emphasis on grace can justify taking the liberties with God, for the very concept of grace demands gratitude, and gratitude cannot be casual. Gratitude becomes active through obedience. I'll never forget my first altar call. My first altar call where I, I had already given my life to Jesus. There was this uh, place at that time, it was Faith School International, but this now it's our Faith School, it's Faith, 
Faith International School, but it was uh, Faith School Theology at that time. They had come to our church, and they had done a, a service, and it was cool. I came from, I, my church was about 50 people. I'm all about small churches. Small churches change the world. Uh, it seems like every big conference, like, uh, I don't know if Sean Cooper's here, but he was, ta- I, he, sorry for mentioning your name, Sean. He's like, don't talk about me in public. Um, it, but he pointed me to this resource. Every conference you go to is about either how a big church runs or how to make your church big. Nobody's thinking about 85% of the churches that are out there that are between 100 and 250 people. That's, that's 85% of us. Why don't they give us something good to work with? And listen, I would love for the entire city of Lowell, Andover, Tewksbury, Haverhill, oh, everybody to come here. Not everybody wants Jesus, especially in this part of the country. This is tough territory. Right? You know? You start bringing up Jesus, and somebody's like, yeah, man, he deals drugs in my neighborhood. You know? Like, there's no, like... Bible Belt reference point here, but Catholicism is a helpful thing because we, at least we can acknowledge, yeah, God's real, and we can, we can start from there. But my first altar call, these people come forward, and they, they're, they're like, if you feel a call to full-time vocational ministry, I, I still can't even tell you what, what all those words mean. But he's like, if you feel a call to full-time vocational ministry to do this, I want you to come forward. And I came forward, And I knelt down. I had just given my life to Christ that week, and this was my prayer. I said, Lord, anytime, anywhere, anything. I have no idea what they're talking about. All I know is that I am so grateful for what you've done. You see, idolatry is worshiping that which should be used and using that which should be worshiped. But God, Jesus Christ is a relationship. My dedication, my devotion, my follow-through all revolves around the fact that I understand him as a person who I respect, who I love, who I adore, who I cherish, who I am accountable to. And I said, Lord, here's my life. And I said this foolish prayer, but this, th- I meant this with all of my heart. I didn't understand how it worked, but I said, Lord, if me going to hell makes two people go to heaven, I'm at your disposal. Those were my first two prayers at an altar call as a Christian. Now, I have since reneged on that. <laughs> because, you see, this guy isn't talking about When you go to church, shut up, don't talk, don't be an idiot. No, he's not talking about that. In fact, these were probably some of the sweetest things God ever heard come off of my mouth. But you know why? Because they weren't an offering of a fool. They were an offering of somebody who was grateful. And I think it's not just that we sing the songs and we know the words. It's that we have in our heart that we choose our words wisely and we choose our sincerity strong fools are not a fixed type of person they're not loud and extroverted personalities fools behave in a certain way they pour out streams of pious phrases that outrun the intentions of their life and their ability to follow through there are some 
very godly people in different parts of the world that all they have within their reach is Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox, but they understand that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. That's as far as they know it. They're accountable for that. But how much more us that we have a freedom? And Paul says that freedom is not a liberty for sin. We talk a lot of promises when things look promising, but how is our follow-through? All talk and no follow-through is dangerous for you. It's one thing to speak, it's another thing to promise and not deliver again and again and again. Look at what he says here in chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. It says, when you make a vow, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vows. It is better that you not make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Vows or promises were an integral part of Judaism and they are central to Jesus who is their Messiah and we have been grafted into that vine. One angle of this worshipers committed themselves to some kind of action, usually an offering or sacrifice, if God would grant them their request. It's not uncommon to read in the Bible, someone saying, Lord, if you do this for me, I will, I will do this for you. And that's what he's talking to. He's saying, don't play that game, and then all of a sudden, when God does that for you, that all of a sudden, you start reworking the deal, right? The temple messenger was basically the one who would collect on the vows on behalf of the priests, and uh, they would follow through. I'm looking for two Italian men with a license to carry that can start collecting for the church. If you uh, have an application, submit it. We just That's like the temple messengers. They'd show up, and they'd be like, it's time to pay. And uh, you see, in, in a simple way, sorry, that was an attempt, a really bad attempt at a joke. The Italian jokes are all played out here, but... Listen to this. Gifts functioned almost as a credit system out of a desire and a way to bless God and his church and his work at future time on an ongoing basis. Like, it's like, God, thank you. Just recently, this was kind of a cool thing, and uh, I don't even know if they're listening or they're hearing, but there was somebody that was going to one of the ministries of this program. They weren't going to, uh, ministries of this church. They weren't going to, the, to this church. They were going to one of the ministries, and they're on a journey back to Jesus. But they had come into some finances, and they said, I need to tithe on this. And so I'm walking into the church, and, and like all of a sudden, there's this conversation going on with, with uh, one of the workers, and, and the person hands an envelope, and they, and, um, Pastor Dick was there, and we were just all kind of shooting the breeze, and, and when they walked out, I, I found that they just gave like $3,500 to the church. Now, I'm not mentioning their name because I'm, they, they didn't give it for the sake of doing it, but I was like, what's that? He said, I, I, it was, this is my tithe. This is what I promised to God. I, I, I'm trying to find my way back little by little. I'm getting there, we're, and our hope is to get them into here, but I was like, oh my gosh. I haven't seen that kind of like follow-through in somebody in a long time. That's, that means something. That means something. And, and trust me, we've got potholes to fill. We could use it, right? 
our faith promises to missionaries around the world. I just got a slew of calls from missionaries saying, Paul, can you help us? Can you? And this is the terrible thing of teaching in a Bible college for a decade and a half is that half of the missionaries that are out there, I know them all. So they call me up, Pastor Paul, please help me. I'm like, you know what? This is my thing. We're doing a faith promise in October, and if we, if we bring in more than we hope, uh, maybe we can add you on. That's, that's like, I, I mean, I literally could fill every inch of this wall with pictures right now of tons of students that have left their culture, their country, their comforts to, to share the gospel in places where Jesus' name needs to be shared. See, vows were one way of expressing service to God. The, they're gifts we intend to give, like our tithe or our offering, but they also encompass what resolutions and commitments we intend to do. It's It's like this thing in your heart that you say, like, I, I don't mean to zero you out, Joe, but like, you don't even know how much it blessed me. My son comes home and he's got his nice little car. I hate that all youth group kids that I ever was youth pastor over and every parishioner always had nicer cars than me. It was just like, I was always driving chitty chitty bang bang, right? And they'd pull up in like a Lexus or, so my son got really lucky at the advice of a good friend and he, he bought a car that would go the distance. And so it was worth it for him to get this car. It, he has to pay a little bit more on insurance, but it, it's, it's gonna go the distance. But he, he just was looking at me and he's like, Dad, my Lexus got scratches on it at the parking lot. And he wasn't saying it like that, but like, and then I'm like, oh shoot, I, I, gotta I gotta take care of that. And then all of a sudden you're out there fixing that. That means something, dude. That, that like, I know you're not like, I know you, you know, I, I know that, but like, that means something. What if we all took that kind of posture and just said, God, I just like, what it, you see, it, we have this saying, whenever somebody teams with me, a couple of things I'll make them do. I'll make them clean a toilet, because if it, there's a job below you, there's a person below you. Um, don't worry, I won't make that for church membership, but, but, uh, but, but like that, that kind of like, I was going to go somewhere with that. It just, it meant something. It meant, it meant something that you did that. Like, and it, it's that same thing of like picking up garbage or whatever. And some of you, you have these ideas in your heart of like, I really want to do this. I really want to, and, and what this writer is trying to tell us is like, follow through, follow through. The, the saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It really is. It's like, it really is. There isn't much. My father used to always say to me, what I said earlier, your, Paul, your word is your bond. Like, it doesn't matter how many lawyers sign stuff. People sign with lawyer signatures all the time because they're liars. He says, and, and so they want to make sure that you don't lie to them. But he said, your word, your bond. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Now, sometimes we can't follow through with everything, right? And this guy isn't saying, don't go to church and be silent. And he's not saying, don't go to church and, and avoid vows or anything like that. We're not off the hook. Uh, there, there, were some tra there were some things in here I just don't have time. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up at this time, but we don't bargain or manipulate God by what we give or what we do. We bless his purpose and his people. 
And we don't come to church to avoid speaking and avoid making vows. You know, the really the tempting thing in this is like, well, you know, I just won't make any vows. I mean, it says better to be quiet when I go to church. I won't, I won't say much, and, and uh, I, I won't. Too late, you're already committed. When you said, Jesus, come into my life, be savior of my life, I give you my life. I, he, what he was saying is, is he's saying that I am the word. I am the living word. I am the bread, bread of life. I am the word of truth, which means that I want you to begin to read what this says and put into practice what it asks of you. So if you just, I used to think that the opposite of love was hate, but it's not. The opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Won't do anything. Won't do anything. Just cruise control through life. Cruise control. How many idle promises do we make God in the heat of the moment or in a charged atmosphere of a particular circumstance and just never follow through? I want you to hear me on this. There's a difference between good intentions and not being able to do it versus just saying something because it sounds nice, but never intending to follow up on it or follow through with it. It says, for a righteous fall seven times, they rise again, but the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. I can't tell you how many times in my life I had good intention, wrong direction. But I got back in the right path, right? God doesn't look for perfection. He looks for direction. And I got bolder with my, and wiser with my prayers, but really the implication of all this is that God doesn't delight in tardy fulfillment of vows, which is what fools do. So I shouldn't make any vows or talk in church, right? No. All talk and no follow-through is no good for you. You fulfill vows the same way you do every day in your life. Your vows to God are fulfilled to Him the same way they do in your life. You pay a car payment. You pay a mortgage. You call your mom on Mother's Day. You call your dad on Father's Day. You show up at your friend's house in an hour of crisis and need. You help somebody out when they're trying to move. All of those things are things we do in every single day in our life. What God is saying is, is have a relationship with me. Come and listen to me. Hear what I say to you and put that into practice. If we just simply took what God was saying to us and just put it into practice, even if it's not perfect, even if we use a little extra words, even if it's a little sloppy, even if we fail, at least we would aiming in the right direction. But I think we forget that the responsibilities that comes with grace, grace should translate into life, lifestyle, and devotion to God. Because you will either be a person who uses people and loves goals and things, or you will love people and use things. God's not looking for perfection. He's looking for direction. I close with this story. You've probably heard a thousand times from a hundred other preachers. But back in the day when we used to pass baskets around, it's going through. I'd like to think it's a true story, I don't know. It was for me at that altar, but 
the basket came to that kid and he was like, I don't got anything to give God. And it struck him and he put the basket on the ground and he stood in it and he said, God, here's my life. I give you me. That would be a good starting point for an altar call today. That as the worship team plays, that you and I begin to pray and we get back in the basket. We start there. See, I don't know what God's asking of you. I don't know what you've promised him. I don't know what your vows are or what any of those things are. But I do know this, that if you start with you and him, he'll sort everything out. And although all talk and no do isn't good for you, all talk and follow through is. So Father, let's stand across this room. Father, right now I know that you've been speaking to many of us. And you're not here to condemn the world. You didn't come to condemn the world. You came to save it through your son, but you saved it so that it could be useful for you. And we could make a difference. You didn't just save us so that we could just say we've got heaven in the pocket. We've got the ultimate 401k of eternity. You saved us so that we could give you our gifts, our talents, our ability, our life, our intellect, our heart, our mind, our strength, our all. That we would hear that the Lord is one and that we would be one with him, one mind, one heart, one spirit that we would be children of obedience. Lord, this morning as the musicians play, I pray that your people across this room would find space up here at this altar. Lord, there's, there's just something about a physical relocation. Doesn't mean we're a terrible sinner. It means actually that we're, we're daring to, to tell you, Lord, that we're your people. We love you. We climb in the basket and we say, Let's start with me. I'm yours, Lord. Do with my life what you want. Have your way here in this brief time of prayer and praise in Jesus' name. I invite you up. I invite you to do whatever you need to find that spot with Jesus. I'll just leave the team to play. And when you feel that release, I'd ask that you just quietly find your way out the back and uh, find your way to your kids afterwards and just do it in a quiet kind of way and converse out there but let's make this whole room a basket for Jesus
Hello and welcome to Northeast Christian Church online service. We are so happy to have you with us. Please be sure to follow NECC on all social media platforms. And to listen to all our past messages, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the service. <laughs> 